0: You will please open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 8. Matthew chapter 8. And we'll start in verse 5. And when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him, saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I'll come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. But just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I'm also a man under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, Go. And he goes, and to another one, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled, and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. I say to you that many will come from the east and west, and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the kingdom of heaven, But the sons of the kingdom will be cast out into outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed that very moment. Let's pray. Father, I come to you once again to bring this to you that I believe you've given me. Lord, and I think of those words, it is finished, and all that that means for us this morning. Lord, I know that there are people here this morning that are hungry for your word. Lord, I know there are people here that are tired, and there are people here that struggle with depression. Real Christians. Lord, I know there are people here that are lost and don't feel it. And I know there are others here that are lost and do feel it. Lord, there are Christians here that feel weak. And they need help and bread from heaven to press on through this dry and weary land where there is no water. So God, would you answer from heaven this morning? Would you come to us? And meet your people. God, I could care less about sermons. I could care less about looking like a fool. But your people. Your people. Remember your people. For the sake of your son. And I know you will. I know you will. Amen. Well, um, on Monday um, I, I was I, I can't even remember exactly where I was at, but I was thinking um, just about several things, and all of a sudden, this passage came to my mind, and it came to me with such force that I I felt like the Lord had given me an exhortation to give, possibly on Wednesday night. You know, sometimes Brother Charles or Brother Dick will open up the time, like Brother Dick did earlier and said, does anybody have anything from the Word? And so on Monday, I actually jotted a few things down in my little notebook, and I thought, well, God's given me this for the people to encourage them. And, you know, I'll just maybe say two or three minutes on it, and I really feel like it's what the Lord's given me. Well, then on Tuesday, Charles calls (laughs) and he says, I'm going to be gone this Sunday, can you preach? And so I deduced from that that God had maybe wanted me to speak for a little more than two or three minutes on it. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to direct you to the subject of what it means to be under the authority of the Word of Christ. And like Brother Dick said, for a Christian, that's not burdensome at all. You delight in that. That's, all, that's what you want. And that's what your heart absolutely beats for this morning. But, um, and I, think, I believe this, this message this morning, where I, wherever you are this morning, just like I was saying in my prayer, I believe God has something for you. You know, we, we need to be very careful not to react against those people that promote the doctrine of carnal Christianity. And basically, carnal Christianity says that you can become a Christian and then live and have no fruit in your life at all. You can live for 10, 20, 30 years and you never see fruit, but you're still a Christian because you prayed a prayer, because you walked an aisle or something like that. Now, that doctrine is so absolutely absurd that I'm not even going to patronize it by refuting it this morning from the Bible. It's just crazy but one thing that we need to be careful of doing is not so far reacting against that that we have no place in our theology and in our thinking that a christian gets weak and a christian needs exhortation and sometimes you get in the sloth of despond and you get depressed and you feel like that you're you're just fighting against the air and you can't tell up from down and you need help and you need exhortation you need something to you need a word to come along to push you along it's like you're walking, you feel like you're walking in darkness. It's like it says there in Isaiah, let him who walks in darkness and has no light, let him trust in the name of the Lord his God. You need faith, you need you need a word that you can latch on to, and even though it's all dark around you, you know you've got a promise out here that carries some authority. Carries some authority. But even if you're not a Christian this morning, I believe there's something for you in this passage. And so let's look at this. Um, Let's just look at this passage and let's consider this question of what is the authority of Christ and what does it look like to be under that authority. When I was in high school, I remember I knew a guy and he paraded this banner on the back of his car that said, Question Authority. And that slogan kind of became a cry of a whole generation. It became a banner of a whole generation to question authority. People wanted to become individualistic. They wanted to be their own selves. They wanted to break out from the mold. But what they didn't know is they were doing exactly what every other generation has done since Adam in the garden. Trying to become self-centered, trying to become individualistic. And so trying to while trying to stop being like everyone else, they became like everyone else, and chaos sets in. And so people walk around and they just nobody knows what's going on. Everybody's looking for an authority, who has answers. I can remember being in high school before I was a Christian. I was we would sit around with my friends and we would talk about, man, what is the answer to all this? Is there anybody out there with an authority? Is there anybody that can say anything that's true and that we can hold on to and we can know for sure? I don't know anything else that's going on right now, but I know that right there is true. And it's precisely at this juncture, it's precisely into this situation which Christ breaks into the world. That God sends His Son into the world and the Word becomes flesh, and dwells among us. Now here's one with authority. He takes his seat up on his mountain and he begins to give his law. He's not quoting the scribes of the day. He's not quoting the famous Jewish commentators. He's not even quoting other people. He says, you've heard it said, but I say to you. And what happens right after that? People begin to say, we've never heard anybody speak this way. This is somebody with authority. Now, there's something that threatens us this morning, and it's this the greatest and most dangerous enemy of authority is not open rebellion, but familiarity. Familiarity. You begin to get used to authority. If you've ever been in a classroom, you've seen it happen. You've seen it happen. How many ever times you've been in a classroom? The first day of class, nobody is making a sound. Everybody's sitting right there in their desk. The teacher comes in, nobody's making a peep. Well, what begins to happen? Slowly but surely, as the semester, or quarter, or whatever you're in starts to go along, people start to talk, and by the end, it's chaos. People going crazy, students all over the place, throwing stuff. The teacher can barely keep a hold of the class. What happened? Well, people started getting familiar with the authority. That can happen even under the context of the Word and the Word of Christ. You get used to coming to church. You get used to coming week in and week out to church and you get used to hearing sermons And pretty soon you're no longer sitting under a sermon, listening for the Word of God, discerning, yes, searching the Scriptures to see whether or not what the preacher is saying, so yes, but still sitting under the Word. You come in like Solomon says, and you says, Lord, give me a hearing heart. I want to hear something from you this morning. I know you will always feed your sheep. So when I go to the building this morning and someone stands up and opens up the Bible, even if they read a text, there's something for me. I'm sitting under that. But you can get used to that. And pretty soon you're sitting on the same level of it. And you're just kind of looking for insights and looking to see if the preacher's going to say anything different than anybody else has. Or if he's going to use an illustration that you've never heard or something to awe you or wow you that you can say, man, that was a pretty interesting sermon that he gave. It can happen when you're reading your Bible. You're sitting under the Word. You come to the Bible to be informed, not to inform the Bible, but you begin to get familiar with it. And so you just kind of looking for the Bible. You're kind of looking for insights or new things that just kind of awe you or wow you, and you just leave your time studying the Word. Like, man, that you know that's pretty amazing doctrine. I've never seen that before. But it's not informing your life. It's not breaking you into its mold. There is a danger this morning with becoming familiar with authority, with it becoming familiar. There's also another danger here, and it's a little bit more subtle. And I want you to turn with me to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. Now this is the parallel passage, and basically what that means is, this is Luke telling exactly what happened, um, the same as, as Matthew was in the same situation. And that's what happens a lot of times in the Gospels. You'll get one guy, they're they're describing the exact same situation, but they'll just bring out different aspects of it. Now listen to this. When he, talking about Christ, had completed his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And a centurion slave, who was highly regarded by him, was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus... He sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and to save the life of his slave. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, he is worthy. Now, do you see anything in this passage? Now, over here in Matthew's gospel, Matthew is saying that the centurion came to Christ and earnestly implored him. Over here in Luke's Gospel, Luke is saying no. It was Jewish elders that came to Christ, earnestly implored Him. Now we have a real predicament on our hands. We have something that threatens to undermine everything that I'm going to contend here for this morning. And that is, is that we have God's revelation here. And as such, we have the very words of Christ. We have an authority. We have Christ speaking to us out of this word. But if we've got a contradiction, we've got serious problems. But far from being anything that's going to discredit our discussion this morning... This actually establishes everything that we're going to be saying. And this is why. When you have authority, your words command just as much weight as your presence. And so you can say, when somebody has authority, you can say this person came to him and he was imploring him. Or, if he sent his servants, you can say that he sent servants coming to him to implore him. Do you see that? When you have real authority, your words command just as much weight as your presence. And so what Matthew's doing over here is he's showing you the centurion's authority. When his servants came, delivering verbatim what the word of the centurion is, it carries the same weight so that you can say it is as though the centurion is in their very presence. Authority. Authority. So the question is, is, is your life under the authority of Christ? Well, that brings up a question. And let's just flip back over to Matthew chapter 8. The question is this. What kind of authority does the Lord Jesus Christ have? I'm going I'm to give you some, some points and I'm going to read some verses. Um, I, I'll just read them. You don't have to turn there. Well, let's look at His authority in teaching. Matthew seven twenty nine. For He was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. And what were people saying? We've never heard anybody speak this way. How about over sickness? Matthew 10, 1, Jesus summoned His twelve disciples and gave them authority to heal every disease and every kind of sickness. You've got to have authority to give authority. How about over demons? Mark chapter 6, verse 7. And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs, giving them authority over unclean spirits. How about Luke 4:36? With authority and power, he, Jesus, commands the unclean spirits and they come out. Revelation 12.10, then I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of His Christ have come. For the accuser of our brethren has been thrown down. He who accuses them before our God night and day. Matthew 8.16, when evening came, they brought to Jesus many who were demon-possessed, and He cast out spirits with a word. That's authority. That's authority. How about to forgive sins? Matthew 9, 6 through 8. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, get up, pick up your bed, and go home. And he got up and he went home. But when the crowd saw this, they were awestruck and glorified God who had given such authority to men. How about over the weather? Matthew 8:26 and 27 he said to them why are you afraid you men of little faith then he got up and rebuked the winds and sea and it became perfectly calm then the men were amazed and said what kind of man is this that even the winds and the waves obey him we read over this stuff that's amazing the winds and the waves are going crazy and Jesus stands up in the boat and rebukes them and it stops. And nobody was like, wow, that was interesting. People were fearing. They said, man, who on earth is this? He has authority. How about upholding all of creation? Hebrews 1.3, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature. And he upholds all things by the word of his power. To execute judgment. John 5.26 And he gave him authority. Jesus. God gave Christ authority to execute judgment. How about to lay down his life and take it up again? John 10.18 No one has taken it away from me. Talking about his life. But I lay it down on my own initiative. And I have the authority to lay it down. And I have the authority to take it up again. Well... Summary statements, he's basically got all authority. All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. Matthew 28. John 17.1. God gave him authority over all flesh. Ephesians 1.21. God seated him at his right hand in heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion. One more. Colossians 2.10. He is the head over all rule and authority. In case there is any doubt in your mind, the Bible just keeps heaping statement on top of statement, example on top of example. It gives you stories. It gives you didactic teaching. It gives you doctrine. It gives you theology. It puts it in parables. Any and every way that it can give it to you, it is screaming one note All authority belongs to Christ. All authority belongs to Christ. If you are not walking with Christ, do you realize that you are almost the only thing in creation that is not in submission to Him? That should make you fear. That should send chills down your spine. If you are not walking with the Lord Jesus Christ, you are almost the only thing left in all of creation that is not in submission to His authority. Well, this brings up a question. What does it look like to be under the authority of the Lord Jesus Christ? And I think this is where our text really helps us. One answer we can say, look at verse 9. I think this is pretty practical. He says, for I am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes. And Christ says, do you come? and you come. And Christ says to you, do this and you do that. That's one instance. That's what it looks like practically worked out to be under the authority of Christ. But I want to ask another question from this text. I know what the results are of what someone's under the authority of Christ, but I want to know the heart attitude that's going to drive that. What can we latch on to this morning that is going to drive this mentality that produces these results that when Christ tells me, go, I go. When Christ says, come, I don't ask when, I just ask where. When Christ says, do this, I don't ask, Lord, maybe we could put this off. No, I do this. No questions asked obedience. What is this mentality that is driving this life that is totally submitted to the authority of Christ? And let me summarize it for you and then we'll unpack it. I believe it is a humble desperation that manifests itself in faith. It is a humble desperation that manifests itself in faith. Now, notice the the centurion's response here. And hold your place there. And I want you to flip over with me to 2 Kings 5. Basically, what we have here is we have Naaman, who's also a military commander, just like our centurion back over in Matthew chapter 8. And he's also got himself into a predicament, and he needs some help. And so what, what happens is, is there's a girl in Israel who informs him, well, there's a prophet who takes care of problems like you have, namely leprosy. So maybe you ought to check this out. And so the king of Aram sends over Naaman and some presents over to Israel, and the king gets pretty nervous. He thinks this is going to be some kind of plot to take him out. But thank goodness there's a man of God that's present. In verse 8, we pick that up. It happened when Elisha, the man of God, (laughs) heard (laughs) that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, That he sent word to the king saying, why (laughs) have you torn your clothes? Now let him come to me and he shall know that there's a prophet in Israel. Jealous for the glory of God. There's no way this person's going to come over here thinking God doesn't have nothing to offer. There's a prophet in Israel. Let him come talk to me. So Naaman came with horses and his chariots and stood at the doorway of the house of Elisha. Elisha sent a messenger to him saying, Go wash in the Jordan seven times and your flesh will be restored to you and you will be clean. Now notice the contrast between our military commander over in the New Testament and this military commander over in the Old Testament. But Naaman was furious. He was furious. And went away and said, Behold, I thought he will surely come out to me and... And stand and call on the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not, I don't know how to pronounce that, Abana and Pharpar, rivers of Damascus, better than all of the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned away and went away in rage. You see what happens here at the immediate outset? What stands between him and getting his need met? Get him and getting what he truly needs is one thing. It's pride. Pride. I am not going and washing in one of these lesser rivers. This I cannot believe he did not even come out and meet me. You see the self-sensitivity there? You see the pride that begins to well up in a person? And that is what keeps the majority, if not everyone, from getting what they know is only in Christ. It's pride. You're too proud. You feel like that, you know, you, you, and maybe you're here, and this could apply to a lot of people, maybe you're a Christian, and man, you are really, you're struggling. You're in, you're in like Bunyan talked about, the sloth of the spawn. It's like you're fighting in darkness, and you just need some help. A lot of times you have these thoughts, well, nobody's ever struggled with this before. I mean, nobody's ever done the things that I have. And so what that does is that keeps you away from going to another brother or sister and saying, look, I need help. I need help. Look, I know this is an awful sin, but I need help. I need you to help me out of this. I need you to pray for me. I need you to call me with promises. I need help. Will you please help me? Pride. It can happen to a person who's outside of Christ this morning, Who's at night when you lay your head down on the pillow and all those distractions start fading away, you begin to feel the weight of the wrath of God crushing down on you. You begin to feel His displeasure, but you know there's an atonement. You know that Christ has paid the ultimate price. There is a wideness in the atonement. There is a whosoever. You could put your name there if only you would drop your pride and come to Christ. Or maybe you don't feel that. You know what you should do? You should raise your hand and say, Listen, I'm lost and I don't even feel it. I don't even feel the fact that my whole life is about to be destroyed. I'm going to hell and I don't even care. Can you help me? Could I be this blind? Can I be this wretched? Is my heart this stone cold that I'm not even concerned? Will somebody please pray for me? Fast for me? Do something for me? Pride. Pride. But notice the condescension of Christ back here in Matthew chapter 8. The centurion comes. Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Lord, we've got a case that only you can handle here. Jesus says, I'll come and heal him. Notice what this causes. Notice what the condescension in Christ causes for someone who is truly humble. It produces more humility. Lord, I'm not, he says, um, Lord, I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. If you remember back in Luke chapter seven, this happened after, you know, the the elders of the Jewish elders come to Jesus and they say, will you you come? Um, You know, we've got his servant is sick. And when this centurion gets the word, well, he's going to. He's actually going to come on site. Man, the centurion sends out more and says, look, you can't come. I'm unworthy. And the truly humble, when Christ condescends to you, it breaks your heart. And it's not burdensome. (laughs) It doesn't make you depressed. It's It's not this unworthiness that leaves you in despair. It's an unworthiness that makes you wrap your arms around Christ. It makes you pursue Him. It makes you wildly run after Him. Oh, if He's condescended for me, I'm coming. Not so in someone who's not humble. When Christ condescends to them and says, here's an atonement, whosoever come can come. The person who is not humble says, well, I will come, but maybe at a later time. You know, I'm young right now, there's some things that I want to do, but when I get a little older, I'll come then. You see the exact opposite reaction? It's pride. It's pride. Now, what happens? How does a person get in this state? Well, you do not get humble by sitting around and thinking about how unworthy you are. By nature of the very definition of humility, it means that you have forgotten yourself. I have a real problem with a lot of stuff that I've been hearing lately on the teaching of humility. And it's all it is is people just sitting around talking about how terrible they are and how awful they are. And Man, there's never been a sinner like me. And it's like, that's half their message. That's not humility. Humility means you've forgotten yourself. I'm not thinking about myself anymore. It's like when you, I was talking about this a couple of Wednesday nights ago. It's like when you go out and you stare at the sun. Children, don't go out and stare at the sun. Just take my word on this. It's like when you go out and stare at the sun, if you do that long enough, all of a sudden everything else begins to fade away. It's not this introspectionism where you begin to look in yourself and you wake up every morning and think, I've got to get humble. So you start looking at all your sin. It's like you start going through all your trash. Man, look at what a dirty, rotten sinner I am. That's not it. It's looking to Christ. And when you see Christ, you forget everything else. He is the one sun that will eclipse everything else. If you find yourself in need here this morning, if you find yourself desperate and you need what we're talking about, don't go, just start meditating on your sins. Start meditating on Christ. Ask God to open your eyes to the gospel of the glory of God in the face of Christ, and it will be like a fire that will burn away your idols. Well what happens? It's this humility. You come to Christ and you realize that what the disciples said in John chapter six, Jesus is saying some really hard teachings, and some disciples say, "Lord, who can bear this?" And so many, many, many of Christ's disciples, and it calls them disciples, they stop following after Christ. What does Christ do? Does He turn around and say to the disciples, no guys, listen, those guys really misunderstand me. I, I know that sounded hard, but that wasn't really what I meant. That's not what He says at all. He turns around to the disciples and says, do you guys want to go too? There's the door. And what does Peter say? Lord, where else do we have to go? You alone have the words of life. You're the only authority on this thing called life. There is no life outside anything else here. If you've got the sun, you've got life. If you don't have the sun, you don't have life. Lord, we have burned our bridges. I don't have anywhere else to turn. And so what this humility does is it produces a desperation. Because you realize... If I'm going to get answers, it's going to come from one place. It's not going to come from my friends. It's not going to come from distracting myself with music or games or parties or anything else. It's not even going to come from reading good books. It's going to come from one thing, not simply a theology, but meeting with a person. And that's the Lord Jesus Christ. So look at his desperation here. And and verse 5 He's imploring him. Look at the situation. My servant is lying paralyzed at home. Christ doesn't do anything for the spiritual pacifist. He doesn't do anything for the spiritual pacifist. Now there's a real sense in which God is previous in everything. That means if you have any inclination to follow after the Lord this morning, it it will be from Him. God is the first cause of all things of that nature. But here's the other side of that story, just talking about our responsibility. If you can walk out of this building unchanged, you will. The problem with us many times is that we have other options. We, we know what needs to happen. We know we've got this thing in our life. Man, I've got to get some freedom here. I've got to get freedom. I, I know the Lord is calling me away from this. But right when it comes to that point, that breaking point, where not only you tear it out, but you throw it away from you, we have other options. It happens also with those that are outside of Christ. If you can leave this place without any help, you will do it. The only time that you're going to get help is wherever you are, you begin to realize, I cannot go on like this anymore. I've got to get some help. And that's when you realize, that's when the humilities come in. You've seen that here's the answer. Here is the one who has some authority. He has all authority. He's the only one with life. And that that vision, that knowledge produces this desperation it 's just like what Mary told the servants when about the um when they were having the issue of wine, whatever he tells you, do it. Have you come to that place before? Have you come to that place before? but in light of this humility that leaves this sense of desperation, this humility that he hes He's it. He's the hub of life that produces this desperation. This desperation will never end in despair. Why? Because His promises hold true. He really is the one with authority. He really is the one whose words are true. He is really the one who when everything else is dark around you, if you can just find one of those promises and just hold on to it for dear life, everything's going to be fine and you're going to come out the other side. Have you got some sin that's just inundating you and you're like, man, I don't feel like I can shake this. There is, I guarantee you, there is a promise in Scripture. And if you just hold on to that promise, it doesn't matter how dark it is. You're coming out the other side. And the reality for the Christian is even if you don't hold on to the other promise, you're coming out the other side anyway. Because Christ has said, I am going to, you're getting there. You're getting there. I've got authority and I'm telling you right now of those that God has given me, I'm not losing a single one of them. And so if you feel so weak this morning that, man, I don't even know if I can believe, well, you just hold on then. You just hold on because Christ is coming. He'll come. Look at his faith here. Look at his faith. In verse 8, he's saying, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but if you just say the word, my servant will be healed. I'm a man under authority, with soldiers under me. He goes on to say in 10, now when Jesus heard this, he said to those who were following, truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. What is he talking about? His attitude of this, Lord, just say the word. Give me a promise. Give me a promise. Give me, Lord, give me something to tie on to, and I'll tie on to it. I don't care what you say, just say it, and I am here to obey. We spend so much of our energies looking for other resolutions to problems that can be dealt with by the word of Christ. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, practical things don't need to happen, but I am saying that I've seen it enough in my own life to know that there are enough promises in this book and there is enough reality in the Holy Spirit that there's not much I come across that God can't get me through it simply by a promise. Just say the word. I thought I would read um, just a little excerpt here from Dan Smith. Um that I thought really illustrated this. This is Dan. This is a great biography. When he came one day into Eli, a telegram was handed to me saying my sister Christina was desperately ill with meningitis on the brain and was not expected to recover. My mother was sick at home. Father was traveling to Scotland. The request was that I immediately go to Birmingham where my sister was on the hospital staff as a nurse. Is something wrong? I was standing in the street reading the telegram, and the inquirer was a lady unknown to me. I told her the contents of the message. Would you like to go to Birmingham? If so, I will send my chauffeur with a car and take you to the station, and if I may, I would like to purchase your ticket. I was soon on my way with a one way ticket and not a penny in my pocket. While praying on the train, the Lord gave me the promise of James 5.14. You know, it's talking about the prayer of faith, and I think this is very important. Because there may be times in your own life when you've thought, man, I prayed for a person's healing and it didn't happen. And James, James 5.14 says that if I pray, you know, a person will be healed. No, this is the prayer of faith. This is exactly what happens. This God brings this text out and applies it to Dan Smith. There's some reality there. It was something entirely new to me, but impossible to doubt. So he's not sitting there thinking, I've got to believe, and he's squinting his eyes, and he's thinking, I've got to believe this text. No, he just the text has got a hold of him. He doesn't have a hold of the text. Arriving at the hospital at midnight, I was given permission to see my sister, but at the door of the ward, I met a nurse in charge. Have you ever seen a miracle of healing, nurse? I asked. She looked aghast. Neither have I, said I, but we're going to see one. I recounted the Lord's certain promise on the train. Suddenly, she burst into tears. Why the tears, nurse? I greatly inquired. Oh, I used to be a happy Christian, but after losing two brothers and an accidental death, sorrow seems to have robbed me of my faith. We knelt in prayer, and when we arose, (laughs) the radiance of things recovered was shining in her eyes. My sister was saved and healed immediately and most miraculously on the day that she was supposed to die. Just say the word. Say the word. Has God said anything to you lately? I know your neighbor may have gotten some insight, but is there any insight that's fresh on your heart? Do you have the attitude of Habakkuk who says, I am going to station myself on the rampart and see what he will speak to me? Do you have the attitude prophesied of Christ in Isaiah that says this? The Lord has given me the tongue of the disciples that I may know how to sustain the weary one with a word. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to listen as a disciple. We have so much trouble just listening. Listening. Our lives are so loud and distracted. And scattered. And fragmented. Our minds are all over, the, all over the place. When is the last time that you've sat before the Lord for the sole purpose of listening? Maybe reading His Word, asking the Lord, but listening. Why? Because He has authority anything that God speaks to you, anything that comes via the word of Christ is going to carry all of the authority on heaven and earth. It cannot fail. That's the whole point back there with Joshua. Lord, not one good word of all of your promises has ever failed. You realize this? There is not one Christian in over 2,000 years of Christianity that can stand up and say, I know a promise that's failed. That's staggering. That's staggering. Well, maybe one more text. Let's look at Matthew chapter 7. You're probably already there. Matthew chapter 7. Starting in verse 24. Therefore, Against the house. And it fell. And great was its fall. The authority. Of the words of Christ. Your whole life. Is going to be determined. By what you do. With the words of Christ. You're either going to. Found your life on the rock. His promises. His word. Communing with him. It's going to be life. Not just stagnant reading the Bible, but I'm talking about communion with God. Him meeting with you. Him applying promises to your life. Your life's either going to be that way or it's going to be built on the sand. And your house is coming down if it hasn't already coming down and great will be its fall. Now you may feel paralyzed here this morning. You may feel the weight of what I'm saying. You may feel that, yeah, I I see that. I see that, but I can't. I feel like I can't. I can't move out in that direction. I can't do it. I can't proceed forward. I want to believe, but I can't. Well, there's a lot of things that could be said to that, but I'll just say one thing on that. Jesus meets this man with a withered hand. And he comes out to him, and he doesn't pat him on the shoulder. He doesn't say, man, I... I see you got some problems there with his hand. with your hand. He doesn't say, well, maybe I'll shake your other hand because I know you can't use that hand. What does he say? Stretch out your hand. Well, isn't that the whole point? I can't stretch out my hand. My hand's lame. That's the whole point, Jesus. I don't have the power. I am unable. But now we're getting to the crux of the issue. It's now your lameness versus His authority. Which one is going to overcome? Are you going to stay in your sin, claiming your inability, or are you going to on the basis of the Word of Christ because God can walk out of here believing God? His authority versus your lameness. Which is it? Let's pray. Father, I pray that you would use this to further your kingdom. Thank you. Amen. life is a question of authority who's in charge that's the question does anyone have have anything they'd like to say in closing here